Good, good, good. Covenant members, welcome to the family. Uh, good to be chasing Jesus with you all. Um, uh, we last scheduled baptisms on Memorial Day, and then we scheduled new members to be joined in on Father's Day. So our scheduling has just been on point recently, all right? So we'll get that down sometime soon. Uh, so uh, if you have a Bible, grab them. Uh, we will be in Genesis chapter 29 today. Uh, so we're going to start at least. If you don't have a Bible, uh, there should be some under every second and third chair somewhere around you. If you don't own a Bible, please take keep that. That's our gift to you. We want you to have the word, uh, be able to read it during the week. You can also follow along on your smartphone if you wish. If you have the version app underneath the events section, type in the Well Austin. You can follow along that way. If you don't know what that is or don't feel like finding that, you can actually just take this link, put it right into your browser. You'll be able to follow along that way. Uh, we want your eyes on the word. So whether that's the physical Bible or on your phone or whatever it may be, we want you to see we're not making this up. Like we think that these are the words of God written to us about how we can know, love, understand, be encouraged by him. And so uh, we want your eyes to be able to see that today. So um, we're going to be covering Genesis 29 through 31 today. All right. Three whole chapters. All right. Nobody's excited about that? Okay. <laughs> so there's obviously a bunch of things that we can cover within uh, each of those chapters. And really, uh, within those three chapters, we could probably do a whole sermon series in and of themselves. Uh, but we decided to take this as a whole for kind of three reasons, all right? One of them is because there really is an overarching narrative that we hope that you get through this and that you're able to see how God is interacting in individuals' lives. Uh, the second reason is because we decided early on that we wanted to do Genesis for eight months. We didn't want to be the church that was in the same book for 4.3 years, all right? And if we tackled everything that's in here, we would be that. And so we're getting the overarching narrative versus the nitty-gritty detail here. Uh, and then third, because Jacob's story is so depressing that if we spent the next several weeks looking at every detail, like we would just feel pathetic the whole summer, all right? And a brother and sister got to have some hope, amen? amen? All right, and so we want to be faithful to the text, so we're going to do that today. So obviously, I'm not going to read the whole three chapters, all right? If you're doing the Genesis devotional, you will walk through all three of those chapters this week, so would encourage you to walk through that. But we are going to hit on the major theme, and hopefully what we're able to see is how God orchestrates some of his beauty through all of the hardness and the brokenness that happens to be around Jacob and his whole family, really. And so it's really kind of to some extent we're going to kind of find the rose through the concrete, if you will, and hopefully know how do we can apply that into our own lives, where when hardship or whatever it may be is uh, springing up that we know where to look for hope within the midst of all of that chaos. So we're going to look at four characters, all right? Jacob, Leah, Rachel, and Laban. And each of them, what they're doing is they're wrestling through their desires, and God is actually using these desires to try to draw them to himself, to try to interact with them in these really beautiful ways. And so I hope that through this, we can understand how God actually uses our desires to interact with him in these ways too. So a little bit of background so that we know the story that we're looking at. We've been looking at Jacob. All right, Jacob fled from his brother Esau because Esau wanted to murder him after Jacob deceived and lied to him several times. And on his way, on this 500-mile journey uh, to Haran, he runs into the Lord, and the Lord gives him this vision of a, a ladder from heaven and reaffirms the Abrahamic covenant to Jacob. However, he finally lands in Haran after the 500-mile journey, and in Genesis chapter 29, he just so happens to run into the exact people who he was looking for. 
He was traveling over and God kind of orchestrating in his sovereignty, this movement happens. He runs into people who know Laban and he's talking about Laban. This is who he's looking for. And then all of a sudden comes walking down Laban's daughter and Jacob's like, dang, hey mama, right? And he starts trying to spit some game, all right? Which apparently in that culture was watering sheep and then kissing her and weeping, all right? So... Single men, take note, all right? That's, uh, that's what happened. So uh, this is where we left off, all right? Now remember, Jacob was still not a believer at this point. He did not believe in God. He was not a follower of Yahweh, or if we want to use our language, he wasn't a Christian, if you will. Jacob is really wrestling with who God is, and really this story would actually indicate even more of that, that Jacob does not yet really believe in this God who has called him and who is wooing him to himself. In fact, Jacob meets his bride-to-be, Rachel, in the exact same way that his daddy met his bride to be, or at least a servant, at a well in this foreign land, traveling to find a bride. And so actually there's a chart here that kind of compares and contrasts. Remember, the servant, if you remember, goes and finds Rebecca, Isaac's wife. And look at the difference here, right? Abraham's servant very clearly believes in the Lord. We see this throughout the story. And so Abraham's servant came with riches, but Jacob came empty. Abraham's servant was prayerful. He kept asking God, reveal this or show me this. Jacob is prayerless. God orchestrates both of their meetings, but Abraham's servant actually tested the woman's character. Is this a quality woman? Is this somebody who is marriable? But Jacob instead worked to impress her. Didn't know really anything about the woman. The servant worshiped God. Jacob just kind of gave his own pedigree. Look at how awesome I am. Look at the things that God's doing through me. And then when they're both received by the family, one of them worshiped God because of it, and the other one worked to try to show off. And so in a lot of ways, you see a very works-based man in Jacob and a very grace-based man in Abraham's servant. But literally, the story is trying to show us there's a big difference between these two meetings. Both met in the same way, but they're really different people. And so then Laban goes back to the house with, uh, with Rachel's dad, Laban, and then we're going to pick it up there. So Genesis chapter 29, pick it up there in verse 16. It says, now Laban had two daughters. The name of the older was Leah and the name of the younger was Rachel. Leah's eyes were weak, but Rachel was beautiful in form and appearance. Jacob loved Rachel and he said, I will serve you seven years for your younger daughter, Rachel. Laban said, it is better that I give her to you than I should give her to any other man. Stay with me. So Jacob served seven years for Rachel, and they seemed to him but a few days because of the love that he had for her. So uh, the first character we look at is Jacob, and he clearly wants Rachel because she is beautiful. Jacob thought that Rachel was smoking and thought that Leah was ugly. All right, that's what the text essentially says. As you see in the, uh, Rachel was beautiful, but Leah had weak eyes. And so maybe she had a lazy eye or something. We don't really know what was going on, but whatever was happening, Jacob wasn't really digging her, but he was really, really feeling Rachel. And so he then pursues her sheerly out of her appearance or out of her looks. And so Jacob longs for her as his wife, doesn't know her character, doesn't know uh, if she is a believer, doesn't know anything about her. He's just like, this woman's attractive, right? I need me some of this. And so he starts then trying to work. However, Jacob is about to run into his match. See, Jacob has been a deceiver and a manipulator, a heel grabber is even what his name means, his whole life. And so Jacob has always kind of manipulated his way into what he wants, but now he's about to meet Mr. Laban. 
And Mr. Laban is actually an even greater deceiver than Jacob is. And Jacob is about to run in to his match. In verse 18, Jacob says, hey, I want Rachel as my wife. And then you see what Laban says. He says, I will give you her. Why does Laban say that? Well, let's keep reading. Verse 21. Then Jacob said to Laban, give me my wife that I may go into her, for my time is completed. So Laban gathered together all the people of the place and made a feast. But in the evening, he took his daughter Leah and brought her to Jacob, and he went into her. Notice, Laban made a feast, which means that Jacob probably had a couple too many shiner box, right? And then it was night, so there's no electricity going on there. And in that culture, when you first got married, you would actually veiled, and so you would come into uh, the tent to consummate the marriage, and you would be veiled so you couldn't actually see the person. So he was blinded by the night, feast was on his lips, and the clothing veiled his senses. That sound familiar? Well, if you were with us a couple of weeks ago, we looked at how Jacob tricked his own dad by giving him food. Laban gives Jacob a feast. Jacob's dad, Isaac, was blind. Jacob was blinded by the night. And Jacob wore Esau's clothing to deceive Isaac. And here, clothing is deceiving Jacob. You reap what you sow. Right? All of a sudden, Jacob gets tricked in the same way. So the master deceiver has just been Ashton Kirchard, right? He's been punked by his own uh, uh, uncle, really. So the deceiver is deceived. Now, I love the next verse, verse 25. And in the morning, behold, it was Leah, exclamation point. <laughs> and Jacob said to Laban, what is this you have done to me? Did I not serve you for Rachel? Why then have you deceived me? Laban, you scoundrel, right, is what he's saying here. He is deceived. And so in Laban's cleverness, he realizes that Jacob is lustful. And so he literally uses this lust to get out of Jacob what he wants, which is seven years of labor. And so Laban then deceives him. And then in irony, in the next couple of verses, he says, well, it's just the culture, like where we live at right now, I have to give you the older first and then the younger, And Jacob is realizing that these words have tricked him in the same way that he's probably tricked others before with words, all right? So then he makes him serve for another seven years to get Rachel in. Granted, he gives him Rachel right away, but it's in contract for him to serve another seven years. So even though Jacob got what he wanted in some ways, he he got Rachel immediately. It wasn't in the way that he wanted. And if you look at uh, chapter 30, verse 2, you see there's a lot of uh, uh, hostility between Jacob and Rachel. There's a lot of frustration. So even though he got what he wanted, it wasn't enough for him. It wasn't in the way that he wanted. So it left him angry and bitter and frustrated in a lot of ways. And on this chart here, you'll be able to see that uh, we, we, we put up uh, Jacob's name here. And this is the first character that we look at. I think the chart's coming. <laughs> Boom. Well, we also fast forward to Leah, but that's okay. A little bit of a, uh, what do you call it? I can't even think of the word. I tried to tell a joke and I was terrible. Lustful, late, lustful Jacob, all right? Lustful Jacob is here. Look at that. Magic. You just point at it. It goes away. He desires a wife, right? He receives the wife, but he is not satisfied in the wife that he receives. We'll get back to Jacob in a second. But next, our next character is Leah. Lovesick Leah or lazy eye Leah, okay? I was going to put that on, but people take pictures of this and put it on Facebook, and I knew I'd get in trouble for that, so... 
That's what you get for coming to church. There you go. So Leah, poor girl, okay, isn't the most attractive woman. And so then the dad kind of uses her as a pawn to get what he wants from Jacob. And so Leah is just being kind of tossed around in a lot of different ways. Let's pick up her story in verse 30. It says, so Jacob went into Rachel also, and he loved Rachel more than Leah, and he served Laban for another seven years. So not only does her dad not love her, but neither does her now husband, who has been forced upon her in some ways. Worse off, it's her sister that is actually the one that is receiving the affection. It's not some random woman. It is her younger sister at that, receiving it because the younger sister was more beautiful in form and appearance. And so Leah here is just kind of in the middle of this chaos that's going around, and she is being used in a lot of really unfortunate ways. Let's keep reading verse 31. When the Lord saw that Leah was hated, he opened her womb, but Rachel was barren. So notice one of the beautiful things is that God often visits the afflicted. And though Jacob doesn't see her, God sees her. Though Jacob doesn't have affection for her, God has affection for her. Though Jacob isn't really chasing after her, the Lord is. He's trying to show her that he is there. And even though she's hated by her husband and her father, the Lord himself does not hate her. And so he visits her in her affliction, but in these next few verses, you'll probably be able to see a pattern here. Verse 32. And when Leah conceived and bore a son, she called his name Reuben. For she said, because the Lord has looked upon my affliction, for now my husband will love me. She conceived again and bore a son and said, because the Lord has heard that I am hated, he has given me this son also. And she called his name Simeon. Again, she conceived and bore a son and said, now this time my husband will be attached to me because I have borne him three sons. Therefore, the name, his name was called Levi. And if you look at the chart again, you realize a pattern starting to come along. Leah wanted a husband. She was lovesick. She longed for this love of a husband, for somebody to find value in her because her daddy clearly doesn't. Her sister and her are at odds, and so she's looking for somebody else to give her affection. Unlike Jacob, she did not get what she wanted, right? Jacob does not give her love. In fact, in the whole narrative, Jacob never really shows love for her. In fact, in this narrative, you don't even know when Leah dies. Like you see when Rachel dies, you see when Jacob dies, you even see when one of the maidservants dies, but it never even mentions Leah's death. Like she's almost forgotten about in the narrative because of how little affection Jacob actually has for her. So Leah longs for her husband. She never, never gets it. And much like Jacob, she ends up not being satisfied. She keeps searching, keeps longing. She's naming her kids based on her relationship with her husband. Maybe now he'll love me. Maybe now he at least won't hate me, she says, right? Like maybe he won't love me, but at least he won't hate me anymore. And she's searching for this love. She's lovesick. In irony, Leah actually had more children than Rachel and the two maidservants combined. God keeps giving her kids, but they never won the affection of her husband. So she too, like Jacob, longed for something and couldn't find satisfaction. On to our third character, Rachel. Rachel, the beloved Belle, is longing to have children. So she wants to have these kids knowing that inheritance and really in some ways cultural significance actually comes about by having kids. And so Rachel longs to have these children. She sees her unloved sister popping them out like it's a hobby right? Six kids in seven years is what it actually happens. And so she now longs for a kid as well. In fact, look at what she says in chapter 30, verse 1. When Rachel saw that she bore Jacob no children, she envied her sister 
And she said to Jacob, give me children or I shall die. All right, this is life or death for her in some ways. Bruce Walkie, a professor at RTS, he says this. Ironically, Rachel is jealous of a sister who has been pawned off to a husband who does not love her. Each woman wants what the other has and neither treasures what she has been given for its own value. The grass is always greener mentality, right? So she says that she'll die, which the super ironic thing is that she actually dies in childbearing, okay? I don't know why I laugh at that. It's not funny, right? But that's what happens, right? And then Rachel is so desperate that she begins to act just like her grandmother, Sarah. Look at verse 3 there. Then she said, here is my servant, Billa. Go into her so that she may... Uh, so that she may give birth on my behalf, that even I may have children through her. Even I, right? You, you hear this desperation almost from her, that, that I too might have kids. She's trying to manipulate God's hand, trying to manipulate the will in some way, shape, or form so that she can get what she wants. So back to our chart again. We see longing Rachel also desires something. She desires children. She, like her sister, does not receive that. And she, like her sister and like her husband, get left off unsatisfied. So Rachel is like our other three, two characters in some ways. On to our last character, which is Lion Laban, okay? I wanted to call him Licentious Laban, but my wife made a joke that I use that word way too much. And so now I'm super self-conscious about using that word, so I'm just going to pocket it for like two or three more weeks, all right? It'll come out. But Lion Laban, he's, he's always a lion in some ways. He lies to Jacob about his daughters, and then he lies to Jacob about his, uh, uh, his wages, and then he lies to Jacob again to, to actually enslave my brother for another six years after already enslaving him him for 14 years, and then Jacob tries to steal, or Laban tries to steal Jacob's wages, and then he lies to him about how he's supposed to get paid. Like, Laban is just lying and lying and lying. In fact, look at Jacob's testimony about him in chapter 31, verse 6. Jacob says this, you know that I have served your father, talking to his wives, with all my strength, yet your father has cheated me and changed my wages 10 times, but God did not permit him to harm me. So 10 is a number of completion, if you remember early on from our Genesis uh, sermon series. And so essentially, Jacob is saying, this dude cheats me every day, right? All the time. He just keeps cheating me over and over and over again. He's changing my wages all of the time. He's lying. He's always lying. He's trying to get what he wants, and he's using me. He's using y'all, his daughters, as a pawn to get what he wants. So Jacob, Rachel, and Leah actually flee from him after 20 years of being under his control. Now, in irony, Jacob actually finished his contract. And so Jacob should have not just been able to leave freely, but he actually should have been able to take a whole lot of what he had accumulated, all of the wealth, which was the cattle and livestock and all of that at the time. But instead, they flee almost empty-handed because in Jacob and in uh, Rachel and Leah's mind, it is better to leave Laban than it is to have riches or to actually leave securely. So they're about to go back on this 500-mile trip with a bunch of young kids with almost no provision because that's better than being in the labor camp of Laban. And so now, all of a sudden, they're running away. Laban hears about this. He brings an army, and he catches up with them. There's a bunch of stuff here, but jump down to verse uh, 43. Laban is now caught up. Then Laban answered and said to Jacob, the daughters are my daughters, the children are my children, the flocks are my flocks, all that you see is mine. But what can I do this day? 
For these my daughters or for their children whom they have born. Come now, let us make a covenant, you and I, and let it be a witness between you and me. Bruce Walkie once again says this. After Laban's grandiose but empty claim to the property, we see him say, all you see is mine. His empty rejection of Jacob's complaint pertains to the property and his daughters. Regarding the former, he continues to rewrite history, ignoring the contract that he drew up and that Jacob fulfilled. Regarding the latter, his daughters stand opposed. They don't want anything to do with their dad. He's a pretender like the king of Sodom, claiming goods to which he has no title. In other words, he's a liar. If you want to see sort of a funny lie, let's look at these next couple of verses. Verse 45. So Jacob took a stone and set it up as a pillar. And Jacob said to his kinsmen, gather stones. And they took stones, they made a heap, and they ate there by the heap. Okay? Now look at verse 51. Then Laban said to Jacob... See this heap and the pillar which I have set up between you and me? Who, who set up the pillar? Right? Because just a couple of verses before it says Jacob and his servants set up the pillar. So literally my man's is lying about something that's obvious, right? Like my three-year-old daughter lies better than this, okay? But Laban literally can never tell the truth even when it's like obvious. He's like, oh, this, this pillar that I set up. Right? It's, this, is, this is my idea here when in reality it was the Lord's idea. And so always lying. Why? Well, throughout the story what we see is that Laban is actually obsessed with riches. Laban longs to have riches. He longs to have comfort. He longs to have the security that can be found by accumulating goods and possessions and money. In fact, we actually saw Laban in chapter 24 as a young man in which he deceived at that point Isaac, and he deceived because he saw riches. He realized that there was riches to be had, and then he jumps in and tries to find a way to to pull those from Isaac, Jacob's dad. And so ever since Laban's been on the scene, he's been a a man who is after riches. He uses Jacob to gain wealth. He uses his daughters to gain sons and daughters' property. He's using everybody around him because he longs for riches. Laban needs money. And so on to our chart again. Lying Laban desires riches. Now he actually received these. Laban did really, to some extent, own everything that was around him. He comes with this huge army. He overtakes them. He owns all of these things. You see throughout the story, the prosperity that the Lord gave Jacob was actually also surrendered to Laban. He got what he wanted, but Laban also was not satisfied. Another dollar, right? He needs to have another dollar, He thinks it's not enough. He's searching and searching and searching and longing to find his value, his worth, his identity, his significance through wealth. And so he, like our other characters, are not satisfied. So there you go, our four characters. Each wants something. Some get it. Sometimes not how they want, but they get it. Others, they they don't get what they want. But all of them show the exact same trait in discontentment. All of them are not satisfied in some way. They're not alive. They may be rich, but they don't have true wealth. They may have marriage, but they don't have one flesh. They may have kids, but they don't have the love of a family. They all are not satisfied in some ways. Discontent. That's the end of our sermon. Let's pray. I'm just kidding. (laughs) I mean, this is depressing though, right? Like, like this is a story of a family in utter chaos like we saw a couple of weeks ago. So what are we supposed to do with this sad drama of a story? Like, like what does this mean for our lives? How, how does this Im- uh, apply in some ways? 
Well, what happens is, is there's actually a fifth character that is floating around the scene all throughout the story. Now, in irony, the whole Bible is actually about this character. <laughs> However, ever since Jacob gets on the scene, you barely even see his name. Why? Well, it's the Lord God. God is clearly orchestrating in these crazy ways through behind the scenes throughout the whole story, but you don't see him. Why? Because Jacob, Rachel, Leah, and Laban, none of them actually have faith in God. And so even though God is moving and orchestrating and acting, you don't see him present, but he's there if you know how to look for him. He's, he's there in these beautiful ways. God is moving behind the scenes with each of these characters. And what God is doing is he's actually using their desires to draw them into something greater than what their heart actually desires. Now, if we had more time, we would look more intimately at each of these characters, but I'm just going to give you two or three verses for each of these characters so that you can see how God is interacting with them. All right, first, our boy Jacob. Jacob steps on the scene, ignorant of God, places conditions on him, doesn't follow. However, God uses trial in Jacob's life to begin to produce in Jacob faith, right? Look again at chapter 31, verse 3. Then the Lord said to Jacob, return to the land of your fathers and to your kindred, and I will be with you. So Jacob sent and called Rachel and Leah into the field where his flock was and said to them, I see that your father does not regard me with favor as he did before, but the God of my father has been with me. See, for the past 20 years, God has been grinding down Jacob with hardship and with pain and with frustration and with trial, literally has this man in a labor camp of some sort, grinding him away. And even though he kind of got what he wanted, he wasn't satisfied, but God was doing something with this man's heart behind the scenes. In verse 3, God calls Jacob out of the land. And then what does Jacob do? He's, he's obedient. Jacob? Obedient? Right? Like, like this was a man who has shown no obedience the whole time we've seen him. In fact, he's only a, 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 a conniving, a, a, a mischievous person. He's a heel grabber in some ways. God calls him out and he actually does what God tells him to do. More importantly, he actually claims the Lord as his own. He says, but the God of my father has been with me. And it's the first time in Jacob's story that you see him beginning to profess some sort of faith in God. Now, listen, don't expect too much of him, all right? He's new to this Christian thing, all right? And so he is a man of unrefined character, but nonetheless, he is clearly beginning to actually trust God. He believes, nonetheless, he's claiming God as his own. So God sends trial to Jacob, and then what happens? Jacob has faith. God allows trial to enter into this man's life, and through this child, he produces faith. Next, lazy-eyed Leah. I mean, lovesick Leah. She never gets a husband, right? Doesn't get what she wants, but God doesn't put her through trial. In fact, what God does for her is he blesses her with gift after gift after gift, after gift of children. Remember in 29:31, we saw that the Lord says she wasn't loved, so he opened up her womb. And then he gives her these children over and over and over again. In fact, she has seven children, which is another Hebrew number for perfection or for completion. And so she gets all of these kids, right? But you see her naming these kids each time, trying to find a way to win the affection of her husband. 
Well, if you look back at her story there in verse 35, it says this in 29:35. And she conceived again and bore a son and said, this time I will praise Yahweh, is what that says, the Lord, L-O-R-D, all caps, the covenant name of God. Therefore, she called his name Judah. Then she ceased bearing. All of a sudden, God was enough for her. Now, you would think that it would say, then she had 70 other kids, right? Because she all of a sudden had belief in God, but then all of a sudden, she stops bearing, right? Why? Well, all the other times, the kids were named in relation to her relationship with Jacob, but now all of a sudden, she realizes that God is enough, that God is a better husband than Jacob could ever be, Then she's beginning to have this covenant relationship with God, Yahweh, this intimate being that she can know personally, and so through his divine sovereignty, through this child, Judah would actually come our Messiah, God orchestrating in these beautiful ways, right? So God gives her gifts, gives her gifts, and then she still isn't satisfied, but he keeps blessing her, and then through this, she comes to faith. Longing Rachel wants a child, wants a child, wants a child, our third character. And all of a sudden, right, she can't have children anymore. But then what happens is she drops out the picture. In fact, Leah, who has come to faith, does end up having more kids again. What was happening, we don't have time to go into it, but literally uh, Rachel was holding Jacob hostage from Leah. They weren't able to be intimate and to have kids because literally Rachel was like, you, you, you can't go be with that wife, right? She's so frustrated. And so she wants a child, wants a child, but then she drops out the picture. Why? Well, because all of a sudden she surrenders. You see Leah begin to then jump back on the scene and have kids again. And you see all this other movement and Rachel is completely out the picture right? Look at her in verse 22, though. Then God remembered Rachel, and God listened to her and opened her womb. She conceived and bore a son and said, God has taken away my reproach. Rachel, though in small ways, is also professing God, too. Rachel, who in a lot of ways was like her husband, a deceiver, a manipulator. She even sold her husband for some cake all right, just like Esau and Jacob, they bought birthright for some soup, okay, it's a lame family in some ways, it sounds like, they really like food though, right? <laughs> Rachel, she actually at some point surrenders, and God wouldn't actually give her what she wanted until she finally surrendered, but when she found that God was enough, then he actually gave her a child, not as a reward for her surrender, because that would make all of us who are single be like, God, I'm content, husband, please, <laughs> right? And so it wasn't that he gave her as a reward. No, she actually surrendered, and it was no longer an idol in her life. Listen, friends, God is not going to give you over to something that will end up crushing you in the end. And so God did not give Rachel what she wanted because it would have crushed her. She would have found value, worse significance in it. But now all of a sudden, she lays down that idol, and then God blesses her because she now is able to pick that back up, and it no longer crushes her. It's no longer a burden on her. God has freed her from that. And so, surrender in Rachel produces what? Faith. God is interacting in all of these characters' lives to produce what? Faith, right? What about Lion Laban, our, our last character? Well, in chapter 31, verse 44 and 47, we see this. Come now, let us make a covenant, you and I, and let it be a witness between you and me. I jump down to verse 47. 
Laban called it Jagar Sahadatha, but Jacob called it Gilead. So these two names are kind of all-encompassing of the story in some ways. God speaks to Laban, but Laban doesn't listen. God shows faith through Laban's son-in-law and his daughters, but Laban doesn't really listen. God blesses Laban with what he wants. God gives Laban trial. God speaks to Laban in a dream. Both of his daughters express faith in Laban. But in this story, what you actually see is he never really turns to God. The two names are different because one of them is a Hebrew name or a name that gives praise to God, and one of them is a, uh, uh, an Ammonite name which gives praise to a false god. Laban never actually surrendered control into the god of the world. And so Laban, in some ways, actually allows his desires to crush him, and ultimately, they do crush him. Laban ends up just like the idols he serves, empty. He doesn't have faith. He isn't alive. He's still conniving at the end of the story. These other people surrender and they have faith and you realize things actually aren't easy. They're still really hard, but there's hope now. There's a life now. There's no need to manipulate situation. But even in Laban's story, he's still trying to grasp, trying to manipulate. Laban actually gets abandonment because at some point the Lord just leaves him. And so does everybody around him who are believers. And Laban has no faith, and he drops out of the story of God. You never see Laban's name again. So this story, the whole narrative is ultimately about a sovereign God working in four people's hearts, trying to draw them to himself, trying to woo their hearts so that they may know him, so that they may see his love. It is God who has chosen Jacob and is unwilling to give up on Jacob, drawing him to himself finally. God doing what it takes to produce faith. This is what this story is about. So how do we apply this story? Well, it's pretty simple. If you remember from the Abrahamic narrative, pretty much every story was trying to produce in us the same thing, right? Trust God, have faith, believe in him, realize he's good, cling to him. God is worthy to be trusted. You can obey him, you can follow him. He will not do you wrong. In Jacob's story, we see lay down your idols, Lay down your idols. Lay down yourself before God. What is more important than God? The answer is nothing. How do we apply this? What idol in in your life do you think is more important than God? Or let's put it this way. What idol would you be unwilling to give up? Even if God asked you for it, you would be unwilling to surrender control to it. What idol do you have to cling on to? What is it that you is consuming you? What is it that is actually blocking your view from God in some way? And what is God doing to try to show you he is far superior and better than that idol in your life? This is what this story is about. But friends, isn't this what the story of our life is about in a lot of ways? I mean, maybe I'm the only like sinner in here, right? But I mean, every single week I have these idols that pop up that block my view of God. I am unable to see God for who he is. I don't surrender control because I believe that this thing's better. And God slowly but surely, through trial, through blessing and gifts, through forcing my surrender, he's showing me over and over again, I am better than anything else in the world. And when my heart believes that, I become fully alive. I become who I'm supposed to be. 
I don't allow these idols to crush me or to control me like Jacob was doing, like Leah was doing, like Rachel was doing, like Laban was doing and never stopped doing. God is trying to do things in our lives to try to woo us to himself. Now, think about this in some ways. Think about how he interacted with Jacob and with Leah. We'll just study those two as an example. With Jacob, he put trial in his life over and over and over again. Why? Because if God had gave him gifts over and over, what do you think Jacob would have done? Right? He would have thought he was the man. Okay? Jacob is already a deceiver, a manipulator. He thinks that he's in control of everything. So God instead grinds this man's pride away. Why? Because he makes him surrender. Because God is good. And he knows that these things are not satisfying. But imagine if God treated Leah like that. Imagine if he just grinded this woman down who already didn't feel loved by her dad, who already didn't feel loved by her husband, who already didn't feel loved by her sister, and if God just grinded her down, she probably wouldn't have felt loved by God. And so instead, God gives her gifts, gives her gifts, because that's not her idol, these children, right? And in irony, the gifts end up creating depression in her. And then through that, God says, there's a greater gift, me, God gives her himself. God is manipulate or, or not manipulate, he's moving in all these ways through these manipulators so that they can have faith. So friends, what is God doing in your life? What trial is he putting you in? Because in reality, he's trying to draw you to himself. Did God hate Jacob? No. God loved him. So the trial wasn't because God was mad at him or because he hated him. It was because he loved him that he put him in this trial. What is God doing trying to draw you to himself? What blessings is he giving you over and over again? Not because you're good or deserve it, but because he's trying to show you even these things don't satisfy. There's something better. How is he calling you like Rachel to surrender? And so if you're a believer in the room, God is doing this in your heart in some way, shape, or form trying to draw you into intimacy with himself. And I'll say for those of us who are seeking Jesus, who aren't believers, what ways is God doing these exact same things, trying to draw you to himself? And what is it that would create in us a lack of surrender, a lack of trust? God has put Christians in your life or a church that you can at least seek out God in, or maybe he's revealed things to you. Maybe he's even done miraculous things like he did in Laban's life. What is stopping you from surrender, from believing in him? Because ultimately the text gives us a sobering truth that if we don't submit to God, we end up dropping out of the story of God and we end up unsatisfied, unsanctified, and we're never in the presence of God. God is so much greater than the gifts that we are trying to chase over and over and over again. No wife or husband, no job or kid, no ministry position or human accolade. Nothing can actually measure up to the love of God that is found in Christ. What idol is blocking you from seeing him? Now, how do we find the strength to do this? Friends, it's actually found in the story as well. It's through Leah's seed Jesus. See, if we look at this chart one last time to finish our sermon, Jesus is the better Jacob, is he not? Because Jesus also desired a wife, didn't he? It's called the church, the bride of Christ. And so Jesus desired a wife. However, unlike Jacob, Jesus willingly walked into trial so that he can win us to himself. 
Jesus is the better Jacob because Jacob was forced into this and unwillingly went into it so God could produce faith. Jesus willingly went into it that you might know him. Jesus is the better Leah because he too desired this marriage, right? Desired love because we weren't loving him. We weren't giving him the affection that he deserves, that he is worthy of. And yet God gave up all of his gifts that he might show us how much he actually loves us. God surrendered the, e the eternity, all of the gifts that were offered to him, the angels worshiping him, the, the streets of gold, the castles, and came down and was born in a manger, you know, where horses eat food, right? God gave up everything. Why? So that he can show us how much he loves us that we might in turn love him. And God is the better Rachel because he too desired children, sons and daughters, an inheritance that bears forth his name, that carries out his blessing to the world. And yet was, or Rachel was unwilling to surrender, yet Jesus willingly surrendered even when he didn't want to. When he's in the garden and says, if there's any other way, God, but not my will, your will be done. Jesus surrendered willingly. Why? Because God loves you, friends. This is the overarching story that we see in Jacob's life. And so, how can we look to Jesus? Because all of us are going to struggle with this. We know that we don't want to walk into trial. We don't want to uh, uh, surrender control. All we want is gifts, but we allow them to consume us. And so when we fall short, we can look to our Savior who has done this to perfection. And then we can believe in him because his perfection is substituted to us. And then we can willingly and, 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 and desirably live out this faith before us. Friends, Jesus is so much better. Don't allow your idols to crush you because if you don't surrender to God, they will. They will just like they did in Laban. Surrender to Jesus. He is so much better, friends, so much better than anything that's in your life. Fall in love with him. I love you guys. Let's pray.